listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Let's say that the news broke in on your favorite show with a special alert. It has been discovered a way that you can never be sick again. And they can guarantee that diseases like cancer and Parkinson's will never be a part of your life. They can guarantee it. How many of you are interested? Raise your hand and keep it up. You'll never get sick again. You'll never have to experience cancer, Parkinson's, anything like that. Keep your hands up. Here's what it's going to mean. You're going to need to move to Brazil where you alone will live in a bubble. But you'll have no one in the bubble with you. All of your needs will be met. But you'll never be able to talk to anyone, Andrea. They'll slide your food. I know some of you are introverts and you're like, yes, where's that bubble? (laughs) I've been trying to find that bubble and they keep dragging me out. Most of us put our hands down because we go, you know what, that sounds awesome. That sounds fantastic, but man, the, the cost of that is just too high. Now, you think you could live in that environment for a little while, but, you know, ask anyone who's ever spent any time in solitary confinement for a day, a week, a month, multiple months, and they'll tell you, you go mad, alone, with no one to interact with. And so you think, sign me up. I'm off, whoa, wait, okay, in a bubble? Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. You say, I can guarantee that you'll never experience human conflict again ever in your life. Yes, sign me up. We're going to put you in a submarine. Nuclear powered. It will run underneath the water for the rest of your life. And you'll never experience human conflict except you'll just have to be alone in that metal tube underneath the water, and you're going, yeah, I'm not so much in favor of that. It's kind of like what happened and what Luke described for us today in a much different scene than the one previous to it, where the parents were bringing the children to Jesus. They were bringing the children so that Jesus would bless them. And Jesus was glad for them to come. You know why? Because the children matter. Jesus. He's excited about them. He's thrilled by them because they matter to him. Their life is special. Their life is important. And, And it's those, the most insignificant, the most vulnerable of all humanity, Jesus says, and they too are the ones for whom I'm willingly going to lay my life down. Because the kingdom of God is reserved for even those like them. And in fact, unless you come with the faith of a child that's not trying to figure out how it all works and and figure out how I can get myself right and have all the blocks in order without any reservation or hindrances whatsoever, the child goes, I don't have to know how the ice cream is made. Just let me sit in your lap and you keep putting it in my mouth as long as I'll open it, right? The childlike faith. Jesus says, that's how you come to me. In a much different fashion, Luke says, there came another man. Today we want to look at what I'm calling riches, camels, and needlepoint. It just seemed fitting. But we do see a scene where an individual comes... I don't think to challenge Jesus as much as he came to get the answer to the nagging question that really no one else could truly and satisfactorily answer for him. This one that came brought an honest question. He brought an honest question to the, to the one who has been answering some pretty amazing questions with some rather confusing answers. 
But he came to him anyway. Luke identifies this individual, this man, as a ruler there in verse 18. Which probably meant that he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. But Matthew points out in his uh, remembrance of this scene that this man was young. So maybe he wasn't yet old enough to be in the Sanhedrin, but he was coming along in that order of of ruling class. This was an up-and-comer we might look at. Someone who's on the fast track to being a religious leader in the nation of Israel. This ruler asked Jesus to make something clear about what he must do in order to inherit eternal life. Now, he uses the word inherit here, Luke does, because I think what the man is assuming is that because he is a Jew, he's already halfway in the boat. He's under the assumption that all of the promises, all of the kingdom expectations could very well be his already simply because he is of the lineage of Abraham. But he also understands that entrance into the kingdom of God or eternal life as he refers to it here, and and, and that's very often interchangeable in the gospel record, he understood that there was a righteousness that was required to enter into the kingdom. And so since Jesus has been communicating about a kingdom that is near, a kingdom that is ready to be revealed, and many are saying that this Jesus seems to think that he might even be Messiah, I believe that this man, very similar to to Nicodemus, came to Jesus with an honest question. I mean, I'm, I'm working really, really hard to make sure that my righteousness ledger is in order so that I might enter into the kingdom whenever you or someone like you establishes it in the powerful, forceful way that we're expecting. And I would just wonder what you think about it, what it, what's going to take for me to get in. How is it that you define that righteousness? He also says to him, good teacher. I find it interesting that he says good and so did Jesus. Jesus says, you call me good, but no one is good except God alone. You go, what what, what is it Jesus is talking about? Well, there's an understanding that in the Jewish rabbinical writings, one of the titles used for God was the good one. So it was very often translated or, or, or communicated about our God as the good one. And for this one to call Jesus a good teacher, he could have been referring to Jesus as though the goodness that is his is the same as the goodness that is God's. Well, even the Jewish leaders expressed to God a goodness that is intrinsic. Intrinsic just simply means it's a part of his nature. Because of who he is, he's good. And he's ultimately good because that's what his nature is. And so Jesus was giving this man an opportunity to explain why he called him a good teacher. Are are you saying, because according to your writings, there's only one who is good and that is God. Are you saying that as God is intrinsically good, that I too am intrinsically good? What you want to hear from this man as the reader of the account is for him to say, yes, I, I do. I believe that you're, you're intrinsically, there's a, there's a goodness about you that's That's the same as God, and I don't understand how it works. And I think Jesus would have replied to him immediately. Well, get in here. Follow me. Let's talk more about that. In the same way that he looked at the tax collector and said, follow me. And he looked at the fisherman and he said, leave your nets. Follow me. They didn't understand. They weren't sure about what was going on, but they heard the one that they believed they should follow. And I think Jesus says, wait, you're right there. You're right there on the ledge of faith. 
in me that won't make sense to anyone who's taught you, and it certainly won't make sense to those that you're teaching, but you're right there. Who's good other than God? And it seems as the man hears, maybe stirs the dust with his feet. I don't know. So Jesus takes him in a different direction. You want to know what it takes to inherit eternal life? You're right there. You're right there. Are are you going to come in faith? No. Okay. You who, who are counting on your righteousness as far as you can figure... As far as others watching you have told you who are seeking to to create a righteousness of your own, what do the commandments say? Jesus identifies for him five of the ten commandments. In, In this order, he picks number seven, number six, number eight, number nine, number five. I don't know what's important about that. That's just how it you know, works out. If you look back to Exodus 20, you'll see Jesus puts them out of order a little bit. But what he does is he gives him five of the six that deal with man-to-man relationships. How we are to live with one another. What Jesus skips are the four commandments that deal with man's relationship to God. You know what they are. He says, you'll have no other gods before me. You'll have no graven images, no graven idols. You'll not take the Lord's name in vain, and then you'll keep the Sabbath holy. you remember God's design for the Sabbath to be a time of worship and reflection and rest. Those are the man-to-God commandments. Jesus doesn't go there. He just keeps it to the man-to-man relationships. Look what he says. You, you know the commandments. You want to know what kind of righteousness it takes to enter into the kingdom? You want to go according to the law? You want to know what you've got to do? Well, you've got to be perfect. You've got to have never crossed God's holiness ever once in your life. Intentionally, unintentionally. You know the commands. Number seven he gives in verse 20. Don't commit adultery. Number six, don't murder. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't bear false witness. Number five, honor your father and mother. Verse 21, he studies. And he says, yeah, yeah. I've done all that since my youth. Yeah, I've done all that. Parents, you ever ask your teenager? Did you clean up your room like I asked? They go, yeah, I did. How long did that take you? I don't know. Ten minutes? It's taken you 30 days to get it in the shape that it's in. Took you took ten minutes to get it to get it right. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well you do. You go in the room. And 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 all you do is go in and go, come, come with me. Come, let me show you. <laughs> that's not done. That's not you know the drill. Right. But it's not just teenagers, it's not just children. We do it too. Uh, boss, can, uh, can I leave early today? I got some stuff going on. Well, did you get all those reports done? Oh, yeah, I got them done. You know, yeah, you wrote your name. You signed them. You shuffled them. You put them in the file because, you know, I can get to that Monday. Eh, ain't nobody going to mess with that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I got it all done. Well, bring it to me. I'll be back. We, we think we get it done, right? We, we think we have it right, right? But all we need is someone who can see more clearly than we. Jesus could have spent the time right there and could have, I believe, in a very embarrassing way. Jesus could have probably began listing. I don't, I don't, know, how, I don't know how Jesus' knowledge, the, the divine knowledge of God, I don't know how that works. I, I don't know if Jesus could just do that on command I don't know if, if, if he relied on the Spirit to, to do that when it was time. I don't, I don't know how it worked. But I do know this. I know that the God-man was indeed 100% God, 100% man. And, and if it had have been God's will, Jesus could have said, well, you know, actually, you say you've never committed adultery. 
me tell you about a sermon that I preached uh, not too long ago. It was up in Galilee on a little hillside. And I taught on that hillside that it's, it's not so much the action of adultery, it's the lust of your thought life. Now, sir, let me ask you, have you never lusted after a woman? And that man would have had to have said, well, now that you say that, Lord, I, you know, I, but I've never, I know you've never, but in your heart, yes. Let's talk about murder in that same sermon. I talked about the fact that it's not that you take the life of another, but that you hate them in your heart. It's the same root sin as if you even murdered them. So are you saying you've never wished some harm on someone? You've never called one an idiot because of how you feel about it. You've never hated someone because of the way they have abused or misused you. And the man would have had to have said, well, you, you know. Jesus could have went on and on and on to show him his error. I don't know why he didn't do that. Maybe in his, in his heart, Jesus knew that that man would have gone away mad. That he, did, he embarrassed him in such a way. I don't, I don't know how you knew those things, but how dare you insult me? That's not what Jesus did. I don't know. He could have. He got down in the dirt. He wrote some things in the dirt with a bunch of folks standing around with rocks in their hands ready to pulverize a woman caught in adultery. And he looked at them and said, you that have no sin, cast the first stone. Everybody dropped their rocks and went home because they didn't have an answer to that. That's not what he did here. What Jesus did is he, he told him about something lacking. He didn't correct his error, but he did show him something that the man didn't realize. Yes, Jesus, I've done all that. I've kept all those laws from my youth. And he probably wasn't saying that in arrogant pride as much as he just really had been a good guy. You know, when Paul was describing his own reputation as a Pharisee, I forget which letter that he wrote this in. I believe it is Colossians. I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me. Where he says, here's my list of things. Here's the things that I've accomplished. And, and as a Pharisee, in keeping the law, I was blameless. See, Paul knew that he was not sinless, but he knew as far as everyone in the order of Pharisees knew, he was aware that when they thought of him, they thought, man, that guy has done no wrong. There's no blemishes against his name. He's never had a demerit. He's never been called down. He's never been late. That guy is the cream of the crop. That's how this man thought of himself. Not arrogant, he just worked really, really hard to do all the right things as best he could. Jesus says, you're lacking one thing. Okay, here it is. And I'm sure the man was waiting. Okay, Jesus is going to tell me what it is that I'm lacking so that I can do that. Jesus says, I want you to take all that you have and sell it, verse 22. And give it to the poor. What? I already, already give alms to the poor, Jesus. I, I'm, I'm, I'm already on the committee for, for the, the alms and, and, the, and the gifts that are given, how it's distributed. I, I'm, I'm chairman of that committee. I'm already giving. I'm already contributing. And Jesus says, take all you have, sell it, give it to the poor, then come follow me. But when he heard these things, verse 23, when the man heard these things, he became very sad. Why? It's not because Jesus was asking him to do something he couldn't do. He, he didn't, Jesus didn't say to him, I, I, I want you to jump over a 25-foot pole vault without a pole. He wasn't sad because he said, Jesus, I, I can't do that. Jesus showed him something that he could very well do, but wouldn't. Because 
He'd already failed. Commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He went away sad because Jesus asked him to deny the God of his riches in order to embrace the God who loves him. He went away sad. Why? Luke says because he was extremely rich. Jesus didn't prescribe a saving work to this man. He said, yeah, he did. He said, take all you have, give it to the poor, follow after me, then you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus is not prescribing a work that will save him. He's describing a work that will demonstrate saving faith. See, for that man who had money, he had the impression, we've talked about this before, he had the impression that God had blessed him because of his righteousness. And his riches was an extension of God's blessing. He was rich because God wanted him to be rich. And these were poor because of their unrighteousness. They were poor because they weren't doing the things that God wanted them to do. What Jesus says is, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. You've missed it, man. You're rich in a large part because of corruption in the system. Your riches are a hindrance to you. Your riches are keeping you from seeing truth that is available. Your riches are a security to you that you're unwilling to set down in order to embrace the security that I can provide you. Your riches are, 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 are not allowing you to see the kingdom and all that is possible because of these things that you're trying to hold on to. He went away sad. It was an honest question, but it was a, a defeated response. I can't, I can't do that, Jesus. No, you, you, won't, you won't do that. You can you just, you just won't. Because those possessions are more important to you than the kingdom you seek to enter. That money is more of a God to you than the one you say you serve. It's a sad reality, Jesus said. Not just an honest question. It's a sad reality. What does Jesus respond? Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is, verse number 24. For those who have wealth to enter in the kingdom of God. As the man's walking away, he turns to those that are with him. He's like, it is, it is so difficult for someone who has riches to, 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 to find entrance into God's kingdom. In fact, the odds are completely not favorable to them getting in. What does he say? He, he gives a... Uh, like a colloquial statement, uh, you know, a thing that must have been made a lot of sense in that time when he said, how difficult it is, verse, 45, uh, verse 25, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I I've heard some people say that what Jesus was referring to was a camel going through a particular gate in Jerusalem that is identified as a need. I don't know, but that doesn't seem to have a whole lot of historical uh, backing to go with it. It sounds like what Jesus is saying is that it's as hard for a rich person to find entrance into the kingdom of God. It's harder for them than it is for you to take a camel, which if you've ever seen a good-sized horse that has a, a, a back that even come, the Clydesdales have backs that come up even this high, then you're looking at the, the, the bottom end of what a, a camel would be because their hump goes way up. They got to get down on their knees for you to climb up on top of them. And then when they stand up, you realize just how big a camel really is and half of it is face. They're really ugly animal. But at any rate, Jesus says it's easier 
for a camel to get through the eye of a surgeon's needle than it is for a rich person to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. You know why? Because you've heard the phrase before, he or she can squeeze the blood out of a nickel. You go, um, I know nickels had blood. They don't. That's the point. They'll hold on to that nickel until a drop of blood comes out. And since there's no blood in that nickel, how long are they going to hold on to that nickel, Ebenezer Scrooge? All their life. And they'll miser their money. They'll hold on to that tough so tightly. They'll not let go of any of it for any reason other than their own, Jesus says. Because they won't let go of their money. Their money has become more than riches. Earthly riches pose a great obstacle to the message of the gospel for most who have the, the riches. Possession and success go right along with that. You show somebody who's got a lot of stuff, a lot of fame, a, a, a lot of security around them, you'll have a hard time convincing them they need anything other than maybe what you got if it's for sale. Jesus says it's hard because it poses a great obstacle, a great hurdle. Earthly riches provide a false sense of security, both physically and spiritually. Education and intellect are also similar in this realm. It it provides us a sense of false security. I think I'm okay. I've got all that I need and I'm secure, but thanks a lot for stopping by. Earthly riches easily become an idol to worship and an idol to protect at all cost, even if you would never know that it was an idol. Jesus said the sad reality of the fact is this. Those who have riches trust in their riches. Can I tell you a sad fact about even Christians, you, you know what it is. Because even now, though you've probably spent most of your days feeling like, well, I know one thing I'm not, that's rich. In reality, compared to the rest of the world, even those that are at the poverty level in our nation are many, many, many times richer than the highest class of people in most of the rest of the world. It's astounding when you see the numbers. When you look at what we see and we go, how in the world could you live on that? And then recognize that the overwhelming majority of the rest of the world says, I could live with the rest of my family on just that and we could live really nice. You say, Pastor Kevin, it's it's a different world. Touche. It is a different world. We live in a culture. We live in an arena where there are things that are necessary that might not in the same way be necessary in other parts of the world, especially if you've not grown up and been raised with those expectations. So I get it. I understand it's not black and white, but it's not nearly as gray as we like to think it is. We're rich. We're rich. We are richy, richy, rich. The world knows it. The enemy knows it. Jesus said the sad reality is is that earthly riches pose a great hurdle to the gospel ministry. And that's a sad Sad reality. Those who heard it, though, said, well, then who can be saved? If if you're telling me that that guy that that has lived a 
a, a righteous, to the best of our ability, probably some in the crowd, I know him. He wasn't kidding when he said he's done all the right things. We've tried to catch him in lies, and, and we can't do it. We've tried to find dirt on him, and you just can't. It's been a good guy, and he's turned away, and he's sad, and he's deflated, and you're like, man, it's, it's hard for somebody. Well, then how can anybody be saved if the folks that are doing all the right things, and, and we who are not, and Jesus says, you're, you're missing the point entirely. I think what Jesus refers to when he looks around and says in verse number 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I think Jesus is referring to the salvation of anybody. Not just that guy who who thinks he's got it right. Not just the ones who've done all the right things. Not just the one who's lived a moral and pure and healthy life, tried to help people and do good things. and, and, And not just those... It's impossible for anybody to be saved. It's as impossible for that one as it is the worst criminal, the worst offender, the most debased individual you can find and point to. It's equally as impossible for them as it is for him. But what's impossible for man is possible for God. So we see this honest question, and this guy go away sad. We see the sad reality of the big hurdle that yours and mine and his and others' possessions pose in us embracing the gospel message and embracing the gospel mission even if we receive Jesus. But then I think he gives this glorious promise. When he says, yes, what's impossible with man is possible with God and not only that Peter says well look Jesus I mean we've left everything I left my house me and Andrew left our business James and John we were partners we left our business left our families my wife is at home I'm with you we've left everything what about us verse 29 he says truly truly I say to you There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now listen. He's left house, wife, brother, parent, children for the sake of the kingdom. I don't think Jesus is listing out like the most outrageous things that could happen. I think Jesus is just laying out the norm of following him. Not abandoning your family in their time of need. Not, not, you know, turning your back on someone and treating them as though you hate them because that's not what Jesus meant when he says if you don't hate your brother and sister and father and mother that you don't really love. Jesus wasn't referring to the kind of hate like we refer to. He, he's not saying that we need to be rude that we need to be ugly to our family who loves us and we're called to love and provide for. But I think he's saying, you know what the norm is going to be when you follow me? Um, you, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to focus on making sure that you're like right there up underneath one another. Because the one that, that needs to hear the gospel, well, they're all over the place. And the place that I might need you to be and the, and, and the, the place that, that you might flourish the most is going to be 15, 20 hours away from the one that you really want to be the closest to. Can I meddle just a minute? Can I just, can I just try to help you understand something that is rooted deeply in our southern culture? You say, can you do that? Look, if y'all don't know I'm southern yet, then, you know, I don't know what else to do. In our southern culture, we will do whatever it takes to keep everybody right close by, right? Now, I, I know. You say, well, I, don't, I get it. But as, as a general rule, we have the somewhat utopian belief that, that we're supposed to stay right here together. And, and if, if anybody goes and, well... If they move, well, I'm going with it. Why? Because the thing we need the most is each other. You know, that's not at all what Jesus says. 
Jesus says, the thing you need most is me. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And guess what? You don't understand it. You probably won't believe it for a long time. But I actually stick closer than a brother. I'm actually a friend who is going to be more faithful to you than the one that you're desperately trying to stay connected right up under. He says, when you follow me, you you know what you're going to do? You're going to be asked to do weird things. Like sell the house that you just remodeled. And move to another place. Why? I don't know. Because I just feel like that's what God wants us to do. And it doesn't make any sense to me. But I just think that's and we've been praying and I can't get away from it. Your children are going to look at you hopefully and say, Mom and Dad, I got to go. Where are you going? Well, I believe that God has. And if that's where they're saying, it's going to hurt. And you're going to go, well, you're going to go where? How how am I going to get to you if you need me in the middle of the night? And they're going to go, you're not going to be able to. But guess what? I'll have all I need to get to me in the middle of the night. Because Jesus is going to be with me. He's going to lead me. I don't don't like where you're going with this, Kevin. Move on to your next point. (laughs) Look, look, my kids are growing up. (laughs) I don't want them to get... So far away from me that I won't say, I don't want that. That's not what I desire. I I don't want to, to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from my future grandkids. I don't want that. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you kind of get used to the fact that, you know what I do? I say, I want you to go over there and I want you to go over there. And I'm going to be with all y'all, and, and, but it's going to be okay because it's just temporary. This here is just temporary. This is about telling folks about me. This is about utilizing the time we've got right now and, and me using you as, a, as an extension of my work that I'm leaving for you, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But guess what? I'm coming back. And, and ultimately, we're all going to be gathered, those of us who are followers of Jesus, back together in the big body, and we'll be together forever in a way way deeper and way more like rich than we are in this time so i think jesus turns to his listening audience and says it's not going to be all that uncommon if you're going to follow me to leave houses and and to leave family for extended periods of time to, to, to go on these excursions, to take the gospel. To be a husband that looks at his wife with about three other husbands that say, what we're going to do is we're going to get in this airplane. We're going to go down to South America and we're going to land on a creek bank. And we're going to share the gospel with these folks that don't even wear clothes and they don't know what this flying contraption is. But we feel like that they need to hear the gospel those three or four guys go down there and meet their death bringing the gospel. But was that in vain? No. Because their wives ultimately followed right in their foot and their kids came right back behind that. That, that whole people was evangelized because they were willing to set aside and follow him. Jesus goes, nobody who leaves house Nobody who leaves spouse, nobody who leaves brother or parent or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. There's nobody who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus goes, you're not going to. You're not going to miss out on nothing. You're going to receive reward in this life. Now, don't buy the lie. Here's the lie. If you, if you sacrifice here, then, then God is bound to multiply it back in your pocket. Okay? Sounds like sow a seed of a thousand and you're going to get five thousand. Listen, can I just tell you, that's just baloney. There ain't nothing in scripture that says that. Jesus never said, if you forsake a house, you'll get two. This ain't monopoly. You know, this ain't how it works. 
What he says is, is that you forsake these earthbound things that will burn up. If you put a match to it, you're going to receive far more in this life and in the next to come than any of those things could have ever provided for you. Just make sure if you're going to keep account of the balance sheet, make sure that you don't more value the hundreds of thousand dollars of a home than you do with the blessings that you receive from the relationships that God brings into your life. Just make sure that you evaluate on his economic system and not our own. Jesus says the glorious promise is this. You can let go of the stuff you got. You can actually let go of things. And you can stop pursuing things. You can decide that stuff is not going to make you happy. And you can go, you know what? I want to live on the basis of what I need. And then I want to invest the rest into the kingdom. And you can trust me to provide for you. And what I know so many of us right now are feeling is, amen. But, and that's where is the rub. When it comes to riches and camels and needlepoint. I think he goes on in verse number 31, which Miss Candy didn't read. But I believe we have ready for you to hear. Jesus moves on and says, taking the twelve aside, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what he said. See, I don't think they grasped what he said about leaving houses and brothers and wives and spouses and all that either. I think they were just following him because they believed he was Messiah. And I believe what Jesus was saying is, keep following me. The more you follow me, the more you put your eggs in in my basket, then, then the less you're going to be interested in the other stuff. And where we're headed is what's going to bring all of this stuff to a head. Because I, I, I'm going to show you what true sacrifice looks like. Having it all, I'm going to set it all aside. In order to take on the call of God that no one would ever call upon themselves to take. I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to show you what glory through suffering, what glory through sacrifice looks like. You just keep following me. You just keep watch happening to me and what's going to come after that fact. And I'll show you the way to let go of the stuff no matter what the call in order to receive the glory that comes as a result. Jesus says, honest question, y'all. How does one receive eternal life? Well, you have no other gods before you. You serve only one. And you come to the one by the way, which is me, Jesus says. The truth, the life. The one who all get to the Father if they'll come by faith through him. Through the finished work that he's done for us, his death and resurrection. You come through me, you follow me, you can set all that stuff aside because all that stuff's going to do is get in the way of you obeying what I'm going to call you to do. Some things to remember this morning. Well, number one, following Jesus is indeed about confessing him as the crucified and risen Savior. Following Jesus is a confession of faith. It is in your heart believing and trusting in the death and resurrection of the God-man in your place for your sin, raised victorious, fulfiller of those things that God had promised, and the risen king that we're going to follow from now through eternity. It is confessional. 
But don't mistake this reality. It will also cost you everything. Because what you can't do is take Jesus in your backpack as a safety measure, as a, as a flotation device, so that you'll be ready for him when you need him. But otherwise, you can go and do about your own thing. And how it works. Confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord assumes that you're jumping on board with him and letting him lead as he leads you and as he teaches you and as he fulfills those things that he says to you in his word that you will obediently respond and say, well, God, I'm, I'm still going to love my spouse. In fact, I'm going to seek to love her more. I'm going to seek to love him more. But God, I'm never going to love them more than I love you. God, I want to raise my children in the, in the teaching and the uh, and the 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 the, the, the principles and precepts of your word. God, I want to lay them out to to them like it's been laid out to me. But God, don't ever let me love those kids more than I love you. And yes, Lord, I want to be a good citizen. I want want to be a good employee where you've planted me. But God, whenever you say quit, even if it's at the last rung before the top, I'll be willing to say that job was nothing but a tool That career was nothing but a a past reality because you want to use me here and I'd rather be doing what you've called me to do than anything anybody else thinks I'm good at. Following Jesus, yes, is confessing, but it's saying how you want to use me. How you want me to serve you. And guess what? When you say jump, I'm going to say hi, hi. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be flexible. I'm going to be obedient. Number two. is a question that I think we all need to answer. And that is this. What on earth is more important to you than your pursuit of and obedience to Jesus? What on earth is more important? to you and me than our pursuit of Christ and our obedience to him you say Pastor Kevin I don't, I don't really know I, said, I think we do I think we're keenly aware and I think we wrestle with it all the time it's probably going to be a consistent offering laying down that Isaac on the altar so that God can be God He can be glorified. What's more important? What keeps you from serving him? What's keeping you right now from stepping into what God's called you to do and to be? That's a a thing you need to to get rid of as quickly as possible. At least get it out of the way. Don't let materialism, don't let your stuff... Be the great and mighty distractor. Confess it as what it is. Ask God how to deal with it. And then be obedient. And then walk by faith. Walk trusting. And walk with the message to those that they come in contact with. But guess what? You matter. God's proven it. Let me tell you about him. That makes sense? Well, let's stand together. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Nobody's looking around. Always to my right, to your left. We've got folks that come down to, to stand down here in the front to pray with anybody who, who has a need. Anybody who, who wants to respond in a way that's tangible and verbal and you're just like I just feel like I just need to move and I need to pray with somebody and I just need to solidify that's what they're always there for you can always slip right out of your seat while we pray you come down there and pray with them. you can always come down here and pray at this altar you won't be in our way if that's a desire of your heart then you know it's always open and always welcome but right where you're at today do you know Jesus
Have you trusted him fully and completely? Have you said, Lord, I I want to, to trust you as my crucified, risen Savior, the King I follow, but God, I, I want to just, I want to surrender my all. It all belongs to you anyway, and I just want to remind myself of that and just say, I'm here. Whatever you want, that's what I want to. So, Father, as we, as we just spend a minute I know how hard it is for those that are hearing your word. It's been hard for me in preparing your word. I know that compared to most of the world, I am incredibly rich. I know how hard it is struggling with stuff in this world. Father, I remember what it was like when it was time to go to seminary and there was a There was an ease of saying, none of this stuff matters. We're going to go. And God, you blessed so richly. You you provided and you made a way straight. And that, that was one of the most rich times in my life. I want that to always be true. God, don't let stuff get in my way. Father, I pray for your people. I ask that you'll show them what they need to to see and give them courage to do what you call them to do. Most important, I pray that you'll draw us all closer to yourself this day. That we might want to walk close. That we might want to walk effectively. Letting you use us in the maximum ability that you can do through our lives for your glory. I pray for those that are sick, for those that are unable to be out and be with us. I know we've got some that that long to be with the body but just can't. Father, I pray that you would bless them richly, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would remind them just how much they still matter. God, give them the ability to spend time in prayer, calling on you to, to work through those of us who can be out and about in the way they wish they could. Use them, encourage them. And then God, use us to be a channel of your love, the message of the good news to those we come in contact with with this week. We love you, we trust you, we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.